Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where it's my job to introduce you to people from the world of commercial property. We're talking with investors and thought leaders about their experiences of the commercial property world and sharing our own lessons from the last 20 years to give you practical know-how so that you can follow in their footsteps. If you've ever thought commercial could be your next step, but it just seems too confusing and opaque, then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. Do you know what? I don't like to go the easy route ever. I like to make things a bit difficult for myself and a bit spicy, but bring something new. Hi, welcome back to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast. And today I'm down in Darlington with Paul Million. Hi, Paul. Hello, Jerry. You all right? Yeah, I'm fantastic. Super f- to see you. And we are in a studio. This wasn't the plan. I just happened to leave a little bit of my kit at home. <laughs> <laughs> I, we had pre-planned a podcast, right? But it was just that I messed up. I left some kit at home. So we've got to give a shout out to Rob. And it's Rob Cam Studio two that were in Darlington using um, Rob's kit, which is very great. We're very grateful for that. Thank he, you, Rob. He just so happened to have an open day tomorrow. Yes. And his <laughs> mum just so happened to have messaged me to say, get yourself down. And that's serendipity. It's pivot, a lifesaver. It's points. a lifesaver. Right. Okay. We are on a bit of a tight schedule because we've actually got an uh, event tonight. Yeah. Your event, the property thing. It's just in an hour. So we've got 45 minutes to get through a few things. And anyone who knows you, Paul, who's maybe seen you occasionally put a post out on social media, will know that you do like to expand on topics. Is that a polite way of putting yeah. it? My posts that are four miles long. <laughs> too, what's it called? Too long, didn't read. But uh, I get very few, I get, I get people saying, do you know what, Paul? You're the only long posts that I ever read all the way to the end because there's yeah. always something in there for I me. do see that. I do read them and I do see those comments, yeah. Um, and for anyone who hasn't seen them, they are something to behold. So, <laughs> Paul, we're going to talk um, about a few different topics, but one of the things maybe to start with is just to give people a little bit of a background to, to who you are, Right, and where we are and where you invest. And then I want to talk about a specific project that you worked on on the eight-bed scheme. So maybe you could just give some context to who Paul Million is. Yeah, great stuff. So I've been a a landlord and developer, uh, mainly in the bread and butter properties to start off with uh, 1992. I think I started when I was about 23 years old uh, in Her Majesty's Royal Navy. (laughs) And uh, yeah, built up a buy-to-let portfolio 2008, got into uh, building some industrial units because I'd bought some older industrial units for a business that I was in with my dad. And um, yeah, just gone from there, really. I, you know, part of the regret is that I could have pretty much retired-ish, a bit of a uh, low-cost hippie at 40 and just paid everything down. But I uh, had this burning desire in me to have, you know, lots and lots of properties and it would be all good. enough, enough. Yeah, yeah, tell me about it. So, yeah, well, you know, no regrets or anything. In every adversity lies the seed of a greater benefit. We've uh, done okay in the recessions. You know, I've just kind of plodded on over the years and, yeah. and, and bashed a load of stuff out there. And, and, it and you've done a lot of, well, for, for me, I've known you on social long before we actually met. Um, and you, you, you are very good at sharing your different projects mm-hmm. and the different things that you're going through. But in terms of actual... Um, portfolio now you mentioned about the commercial starting off then moving into resi but now you've got quite a lot of more service apartment hmo that kind of offering do you is it many buy to let you have 
Yeah, so I've got about um, I've, I've got about eighty properties in my portfolio, about seven eighths of which I own myself, and yeah. then I've got you know one eighth that I own fifty percent with other people. Now I never thought I would JV because I'm in the nicest kind of a way, a smiling control freak. I just like things done properly. I'm a massive OCD perfectionist when it comes to my buy to let portfolio, and that ended up getting me into some really nice situations with supported tenancies. So I've got a yep. few supported tenancies in there. Work with got great great relationships with one care provider in particular um but you know then sort of you know you get kind of bored after putting 45 buy to lets together before you start building some industrial stuff just started building some industrial stuff in 2008 world collapsed financially thought great look at all these portal frames and all this money that i borrowed to do this crazy (laughs) thing but you know the you know the story that i tell now i tell a lot of the stories that have uh, happened to me over the years of because I like to say, you know that Kenny Rogers song, uh, "Promise Me, Son, You Won't Do the Things I Done." I like I like people to save thousands of pounds learning from my mistakes, <laughs> and um, you know I say mistakes, but you know, and properties like a you know, bad properties like a bad haircut grows out eventually. Yeah. But um, what I have been able to do over the years, I, I did it tonight, for example, I'll only have one slide. It'll probably take me 10 minutes to go through. And it's about pivot points because, I, you know, we introduce you as speakers. You know, we get the, the absolute, you know, essence of the juice of the world of property from yourself. But I did a chat a couple of weeks ago in, for TDN uh, Developers Network Manchester. And I was able to, you know, yabber on for about 45 minutes about creative deals. I've... I've Bought most of my portfolio, well, not most of my portfolio, a lot of my portfolio by creative deals, completions with deferred considerations, exchange with delayed completions, purchase lease options, handshakes, how's your father? Uh, You know, so when I was a a younger developer, my solicitor was twice my age and he used to sit with his fingers in his ears saying, Paul, I can't hear a word you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) Did you do that because you needed to or just because it just felt better doing them? My brain splurges creative (laughs) ideas. I mean, Rob, for example, uh, Pivot Points, I I know his mum, you know, who's lending us this, uh, very kindly lending us his studio right now. Uh, I buy about my fourth property. I was taking... I was buying subsided properties that you couldn't basically get finance on. I yep. was taking the fronts of them down and building them back up and taking the sides of them off big gable ends with cracks in and buying properties that other people couldn't buy or didn't want. And I found, a, a, you know, that got me into having to do creative deals, either borrowing finance off someone else or saying, and, you know, I'd go to my solicitor and say, well, I've, I've done a deal with this guy whereby I can basically, I've said, give us your house. <laughs> Uh, I'll take the front off, build it back up, and I'll buy it off you later. Well, once it's What's done, that called? Yeah. How do we do it? Make it legal. And, uh, you know, so I've had some fairly spicy uh, deals over my time and fairly complex. I had a 17-year conveyancer um, who used to get his face in the paper a lot, and he was fairly experienced. And I explained the way that I wanted to buy these two properties by appointing myself as main contractor and uh, therefore taking the guy away from being in breach of his mortgage conditions. And then I was going to exchange EDC the both of them and I was going to pay this much money and I was going to buy this bit of the back off someone else and bringing it all together. And, it, and, and also my own property that I currently live in was an exchange with delay completion. And he said, Paul, that's the most, in 17 years of conveyancing, that's the most complex deal 
I've ever heard about. Nothing so convoluted, I think he said. And I said, well, is it legal? By that point, I had managed to know exactly what to do and what not to do. And I said, is it legal? And he said, yes. I said, well, great. Do you want to work? And he's like, "Uh, no. (laughs) It was was so run of the mill. Uh, Sorry, he was used to just so run of the mill. And that's why my solicitor now is half my age. And he he listens to me and we chat. And and, and he's now doing some really nice developments and stuff because I've, I've pushed him to do that. It's like, come on, think outside the box. I'm great at getting people to think outside the box right okay so lots of experience there on um, various residential properties and then the one I want to talk about was a unit in Darlington where you took um, well you can explain the project but basically you've taken um, some office space some higgledy-piggledy residential space and then changed it into an eight um, eight apartments or eight beds yeah it was um, it's now an eight bedder so it was a property that came up in auction yeah. Um, I actually bought the thing about nine years ago, and it sat there as a bit of a storage area all this time. Now, it had a little commercial building next door, which was a Sunday school, single story, flat roof, and this was a big Victorian house, kind of, it was clagged onto the side of. Yep. And the that was a church building, it was an ecclesiastical building that was uh, owned by the church opposite. And they'd split it off. Not particularly well, because we still had their gas main coming into my property at the end of it, which they wouldn't believe me. And uh, yeah, I could have had free gas off that for I don't know how many years, but, uh, you know. Um, Anyway, so the downstairs of the property was offices, and the upstairs of the properties were kind of really badly laid out apartment-y things, is all I could call them. Um, So we bought that property, and it had a bit of a crack on the inside. And it was on an online auction, and I managed to somehow persuade the auctioneer to end the auction early and sell it to me. And the neighbour came, approached me after we'd done the deal. Um, it caused some consternation. They complained to the auction house. The auction house said, oh, I think deal's off. We're getting some complaints. It's, you know, and I said, because I kind of persuaded the auctioneer that it had a great big crack and it did the realise that the people that w- would be able to buy it would have to be paying cash. And at the time I was doing um, uh, JVs with a, with a pal of mine, Adam, Adam Watson. And um, so... The, I said to the neighbour, look, you know, it's going to get silly because, and I was kind of playing a bit Billy Big Balls, but I said, look, for every, you know, if we're going to get back into an auction, for every grand that you go up, with respect, we'll go up five because we really want the property. So either I'm going to end up costing you a load of money or you're going to end up costing me a load of money and should we not just be friends? And do you know what? We've actually been really good friends ever since that good. guy. So it's great how you meet, a conversation. Meet, meet all sorts of... Uh, so that was that deal. We got that bought. We paid cash for it. It was 126 grand. It was for nothing, really, especially now looking back. Um, now, we put in for planning for um, a 12-bed HMO, and that would have involved quite a big extension at the back. And we were just getting ready to well that got knocked back the conservation officer had a fit he didn't like the um, what did he call it lumpent nature of the extension even though it's not really overlooked it's just overlooked by a, a, a distant granny's home and uh, some some far off resi but you know we decided that because all of the material prices were absolutely rocketing up that we'd dial it back to an eight bed scheme and just keep it within the curtilage of the yeah. existing building so we put back in for planning for the eight bed scheme uh, with our kind of free go, and the uh, planners knocked it back. I mean, we couldn't believe it. I mean, really? it's literally oh, an eighth of a mile from the town centre, so parking isn't an issue. 
Um, you know, I proved that through my hundred and odd HMO rooms that I've got rented out that, you know, less than 20% of them actually owned cars and, you know, but they still knocked it back. So what was the, what was the reasoning? Uh, parking. They thought it would have too much of an impact on, on parking in the area. So we, you know, between common thing with HMOs, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, John McDermott's my, um, uh, planning consultant and he's a fairly spicy character. And we looked at the case studies around the country. There was 200 case studies that had been won, uh, on this ground. So we just went to appeal, but I was that confident that we were going to get the eight bed scheme that I just did it as an eight bed house while we were waiting for the appeal and the appeal came back and we won. And I thought that was going to get caught in nutrient neutrality, which would have been an absolute pain, but they actually let it go through, so we just cracked on and got it done. So that was a nice little win over the LPA. <laughs> we like those. How long did that? How long did that project take then? Well, that actually took me longer because we were on site with that one. We were on site with the. Um, I've got another nice little building in the town, uh, which is a, a former camera studios that were turning into C one. Uh, serviced rooms. We're not allowed we just to drove call past. It. Yeah, not yeah, not well. not allowed to call it serviced apartments because they're below nationally described space standards. Yeah. So they're only twenty six meter apartments. Um, and I also had an eight bed on site in Hartlepool, uh, an eight bed uh, Sue Generous um, in a conservation area, which we'd had a little bit of a battle getting planning, but the, cons- the 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 Article Four in that area wasn't against HMOs; it was just conservation. So uh, we got that one okay as well. So we were on site with three projects. All of the materials went rattling up. My lads ended up spread quite thin because, you know, we couldn't get the tradesmen. You know, they were all so busy on sites and stuff like that, rattling up houses, getting brickies and stuff yep. like that. So I was spread thin. We, we jumped off the um, the smaller C1 project. The, the contractor, the main contractor that I was using over at Hartlepool ended up being... Not as competent as I would have liked him to be. We ended up, because I'm a perfectionist, he knew the ways that I worked, but he wasn't prepared to a little bit dance to my tune. Um, we had a fairly relaxed relationship, but then he, he completely flooded the house. Um, uh, that was an 80 grand insurance claim when we were just not too far from being finished. And so that was that held up that one by uh, six months. And uh, yeah, so I was then, I had to get him off site and I'd had to send my lads to Hartlepool to work every day. So all of these things that, you know, the yep. best laid plans yep. never survive first contact with the enemy. So I was probably a bit over ambitious about the amount of projects I could do at any one time. Right. Okay. So that one has ended up being eight bed and has it let fully since it opened? Yeah, that one, we're just finishing it off now. Um, we'd, we've, we've actually had about 12 single lets come up in a year. So right. I've only got a certain amount of lads uh, and, We've been spread a bit thin, if I'm honest, over the last year. And as these singlets have been coming up, we've just been sort of getting those turned yep. straight back yep. around. It's It's been mad the amount of repair work that we've had to do and the uh, turning singlets back around. So, you know, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And that's one of my regrets over the last couple of years is since doing the property thing, being offered so many JVs and so much opportunity, but to turn stuff around and get it done um, it's what to you've do got it to properly do. takes time. You've got to yeah. do, yeah, yeah. Okay. And when I was last down, we spent a little bit of time looking around an office building, not too far away from where your own office is, that you were also looking at converting. And that one, when we were looking around, it, we were trying to work out whether we could do co-working in there or, or how that would work. And after our discussion, what was your thoughts, and where are you now? My thoughts on that was let's go E2M8. Like 
you didn't talk me out of that, but you asked me some very pertinent questions. And that, that's the great thing about running property networking groups is that, you know, you can get folks like yourself down that have got all the experience to talk to my crowds and all of that kind of stuff. And we can cheekily get you into our projects to have a bit of a look. So we'll pick <laughs> Jerry's brain, but we'll offer him a great event to speak at. And uh, yeah, so when we walked around there, you, I remember you saying to me, you know, it depends on the demand in the area. It was a little bit pioneer with the arrow in my back because there aren't any other co-working spaces mm-hmm. to speak of really in Darlington. There are a couple now, I think, starting to spring up. And I thought, you know what? I don't like to go the easy route ever. I like to make things a bit difficult for myself and a bit spicy. But bring something, yeah. But bring something new. Because when you've done single lets and HMOs and stuff like that, I mean, there was a time about seven years ago when I was waiting for some funding to do the likes of Vane Terrace, actually, the uh, one we've just spoke about, the eight bed. And um, I decided to jump back into my portfolio and take my HMOs from about five decent-sized HMOs up to 22 HMOs. So any three-bedder that was coming up was going into a four or a five-bedder, yeah, okay. a four-bedder coming up. So I've always, like, over-egged me pudding. Um, but over the last couple of years, yeah, it's been like, you know, wow, this is self-flagellation, you know. Close 24 tax coming in, uh, you know, capital gains, tax allowances dropping. And it just feels like the, the government's a bit against us. Uh, challenging, challenging space to work in at the moment. But these things come and go, ebb and flow. But back to that project, though. So you decided not to necessarily do co-working on that one. Well, um, what's happened since then yeah. is through doing the property walk-arounds in Darlington, where I might take 20-odd people around my various projects, and Boise, who I co-host, Anthony Boyce, who I co-host the property thing with as well, he's involved in some of those. So we, we call those, well, they're verve walkabouts and I take people all around the town and through doing that and through doing the networking, I meet so many people that um, are just kind of salt of the earth and you could, I can tell grafters, I can see potential in people. And I, I met a young lady who was a particularly good property manager. She was a real nice girl, um, Gemma McCready. And um, I, yeah, she worked for someone else that I know. And, um, but we just got chatting and, you know, I wouldn't, I don't go around nicking people's employees, but it, it came up where she was actually going to be leaving her current place of employment. Um, so I said, look, you know, you've got great energy. Do, you know, do it yourself, like um, set up on your own. And she was like, well, you know, of course, so many people have those, uh, you know, fears and expectations of terrible things going into self-employment, quite rightly so in some respects. And um, yes, yeah, so I said, well, I'll support you if you want to do a JV and set up a property management company because I knew we could do it, you know, really well. So yep. now now we're looking at setting up a sales agent. So we have started Verve Property Management, which has now got all of its clients, accounts in place, etc. And now we're going to use that building for our offices. We're going to have a sales agent come in and do sales from there. And also the rest of it's going to be co-working. And I was going to say, it's expand. quite excessive for, for one business because it's a nice building, some great yeah, features yeah. in it. And we'd be taking the roof off as well and putting another 1,800 square foot on yep. the top. But if I went E2MA, that would also be affected by the nutrient neutrality, so I'd have to buy a lot of credits. I mean, now that they have got a mitigation scheme in place, um, we, we can actually, you know, get it through. We'd just have to buy a few grand's worth of these credits. But uh, I've just kind of set my mind that we'll keep it in the same use class. We won't have to go back in, well, we'll just have to go in for E2MA permitted development and uh, a separate planning application for taking the roof off and putting some space up there. But according to John, 
um, to get planning for the new roof, we won't have to go in for planning to turn that roof space into usable office space. So there's 1,800 square foot of potential office space. Could even end up using it for event space. You know, if I do a future mentorship or something like that, we could use that. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, you mentioned a couple of technical terms there. Let's just talk through them. You're talking about permissive development. Yeah. And using maybe one way to get the door open to move on to the next stage later on during your process. So just talk through um, what planning um, planning um, position you're taking or the route you're taking to try and develop that building. Yeah. Um to take it into co-working or to yeah, take it into flats? To, to take it into flats, ultimately. We originally looked at, we went in for a pre-app when I first got that building. Because it is, like, sorry, just to start off, it is currently down for office space, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of classed as offices and workshops. So that's yeah. now in Class E anyway. So uh, originally, I was going to go for commercial on the ground floor, putting an, taking the roof off, putting another story on top, and... Uh, doing a 15-bed HMO on the first and second floor, on the ground floor, uh, either keeping it as commercial or doing some SA down there. We put in a planning up, uh, we put in a pre-app for that, and um, the planners knocked it back on parking provision again, even though, um, well, that's, that was their feedback, you know, even though, you know, as an office block at the moment, as it is, we could just convert it as it is and get, I don't know, you could, you could get a highways consultant to prove that, yeah, you might you might need fifteen car parking spaces with that building. So I think we could have argued that, but I was a little bit my business partner in that building. The reason why it sat there is because my business partner in that building um, had an illness, whereby that was life changing for him, and he decided that he didn't do it. But he was the builder that I JV'd with. You see. Yeah. Let me ask you a question: Have you heard of SAS pensions? They're a fantastic tool for business owners to wrap a commercial property up in a tax-free bubble. SAS can work particularly well with the CMO strategy to generate money both inside and outside of your pension. It goes without saying I'm not a SAS expert, but let me introduce you to someone that is. Bryn Walker has been advising on SAS pensions for many years and has been a long-term supporter of the CPI network. SAS and commercial property work incredibly well together, but there are many nuances and Bryn will make sure you don't stray from the right path. Look in the show notes for the partner link and book up a SAS discovery call with Bryn. So he said, well, you know, I'm not prepared to project manage it. I don't want to build it. So, you know, find someone else, do something else with it. And with having, you know, 20 better part hotels in planning and 19 better part hotel in planning, some bungalows in planning for supported living and various other stuff that I've got going on, HMO cluster flats times by two lots in Gateshead, the, that just kind of sat there. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't eating any meat, to be fair. Uh, we didn't have any borrowings on it, so it's just kind of sat there where I thought, what am I going to do with it? So <clears throat> we, the, the, the options, because they didn't like the HMO, I thought, well, you know, maybe it is a few too many people to have in there. And I thought, well, we'll do flats. I, I was approached by the local commissioners. Would you supply us with some, some flats for supported living? And that became an option. And then all of a sudden it wasn't, you know, you're trying to get letter of intents and you're trying to get um, the commitments out of local authority commissioners. And they just think that, I think sometimes that you're just there to, well, you know, if it, can you do it as flats? And if we take Public them, we service. take them. If we don't, we don't. It's like, hold on. So the, the route through planning with that one, because it was, you know, because it's class E, we could have basically just done the whole structure on the first, the ground and first floor into, say, about eight flats. Mm-hmm. But the roof on the building is higgledy-piggledy. It's old. 
it's a lot of usable space that's taken up by trusses. So I'm like, we need to take that roof it's off. It's got some really nice timber trusses. It has, which I've reclaimed. <laughs> you you make, need I'll to reclaim some those. Frames yeah. out there. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the thing is, though, I like free flow of space. And I like a building to look symmetrical. And, like, you know, if I'm going to reclad that building with brick slips or some kind of, like, low-profile ventilated facade-style profile and reclad it and make it look special i don't want it to look like it's it is got a half the roof yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's gonna look i've got some nice visuals to show you later on it does look fantastic in the cgis um but again close to the town center but it doesn't have any parking with it so it's going to be a tight site to work on it's going to be quite challenging to take the roof off but okay. i i can't do that building without taking the roof off. right but but back to the planning side you're using permitted development yes yeah, so the first the ground and the first floor will be e2ma Permitted yep. development. Uh, so the plan is to go in for that, but we'll have to have a separate planning application for external elevation changes, and that including the roof. So I think I'm making the building look much more commercial, much more beautiful by putting a nice symmetrical. Yep. I, I might have to slightly mansard it back to keep the planners happy because of the... Um, but it, it does bookend a terrace, and it is opposite it does, yep. a huge commercial building as well at the moment. So I don't think we'll have a problem with that. Great. Okay. And you mentioned there are a few other projects you're looking on, you're looking at. So what what do you find in your decision making process on these projects? Because we've been jumping in between the different ones, mm-hmm. and you've you've listed maybe about four or five others that are in the process at the moment. Yeah. How do you make decisions on what you're going to do, or is that still a little bit? I don't want to say chaotic, Paul, but just... <laughs> There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on, right? So how do you actually make decisions on those things? Like, yeah. this is the one we're going to do. Or actually, is that too simple a question? Because they've all got different um, different things going on, different elements, different people, yeah. sometimes different planning departments. It's a, it's a frustration that others have, sometimes I have as well, which is not necessarily buying lots of buildings to then go and develop, but having buildings that need development and trying to prioritise. Which project am I actually going to do your best? Are you basing it on ROI? Are you basing it on that one's the easy one, low-hanging fruit? What what yeah. kind of decision-making are you doing? Each building speaks to you separately. Um, and I do liken it to when you know a bit about planning. So I've studied, um, I've been part of a couple of uh, good mentorships and I've studied quite a lot of commercial conversions and uh, you know planning methods. And I'm also part of... Uh, TPX town planning expert kind of um, kind of a, a small circular group that we uh, we meet regularly on Zoom and talk. You know, we get really deep down into some of the planning stuff, and uh, it is a bit of a brain teaser sometimes with some of the permitted developments, especially when you're getting into the class Q, the class ZA, a, you know, town centre stuff. And um, did I did I mention ZA class Q E two MA all of that stuff? It's so very interesting, but it's so doable. So I, I say to people. When you start to know a bit about this stuff, you tend to drive past a knackered old commercial building that you wouldn't let a chicken live in, and you, all of a sudden you see it like Tom, when Tom of Tom and Jerry sees the chicken as a nice roasted, steaming yes. uh, uh, chicken, you're kind of like, yeah, I could do something with that. And if you're getting up out of the world of buy-to-lets into these commercial conversions, you've got economies of scale. So it does take bigger kahunas to get up into them, but the you know, and then you can start to use SAS. Um, to convert them and whatever, which uh, is another really interesting angle. But uh, the knowing what to do with the building, sometimes, I mean, the 20-bed apart hotel that I've got in, uh, or 
project in, in planning for that, which has now been delayed 18 months uh, through nutrient neutrality, I knew exactly what I wanted to do that, with that one straight away. And it would have been so lovely to have got that straight through planning. I couldn't believe there was no objections to the planning. The planners actually liked it. The conservation officer liked it. We were basically doubling the size of a very beautiful building. And um, that was the jewel in the crown of everything that I've got on. Yeah. Um, Aesthetic-wise, anyway. And that's the one that got caught in nutrient neutrality. I've got a, a piece of land that I've owned for 17 years that I went in for planning for uh, one, uh, one uh, sorry, outline planning for one property, two, sem- uh, two, large, two large-ish detached and then three cottages. That got stuck as well. And that was a nice low-hanging fruit thing. Okay, let's, to do. I'm going to allow you to go down a tangent then, Paul, yeah. right? So nutrient neutrality, yeah. what is the sticking point there? What are they asking you for? Nutrient neutrality is certain, I think it's about 74 or 76 uh, local planning authorities around the country. This was all just down on the south coast, really, to start with. And it's to do with nutrient levels in rivers that have protected species in. Mm -hmm. And when those nutrient levels are high, Natural England write to the local planning authority and say, we won't allow you to uh, allow any uh, planning applications that involve overnight stays until there's a mitigation scheme in place. Now, a mitigation scheme can can be buying farmland, i.e. the LPA is buying up farmland and taking them out of arable production. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? Taking it out of arable production to rewild it to then offset the nutrients that developers will be creating through helping them to achieve their bloody housing targets, you know? Could we not just sort out the old water company instead? Now, some LPAs (laughs) don't have farmland. Yeah. So they've got to look at other things like going into their council housing stock and using water-saving measures. I said, hold on, I've got 80-odd properties around the town, 150 tenancies. I can, like, all the toilets, I can do water-saving measures, allow me to use my own portfolio. Rather than doing somebody else's. There's no mitigation scheme in place yet, and it's been so utterly no-common-sense frustrating for developers. Now, in in the apart hotel in Barnard Castle, I've got to buy £87,000 worth of these credits. Like, and I was at a do in Darlington Town Centre and Natural England were there and the local planning authority. And I, I got up and said my piece. And I said, you know, with the bungalows in Hartlepool that I'm building, that would have been, if that had been affected, luckily that drains to a separate area just out at sea. If that had gone into the River Tees, that would have cost me £100,000 worth of credits. Now, we haven't got the GDVs up here that, you know, the, yeah. the, they've got down south. It's difficult enough to make projects stack with the increased um, materials costs, the increased labour costs, and, it, you know, that just wouldn't have stacked. And I got up there and, and said my piece to Natural England, why is it the developers have to pay these charges? Why isn't it the water companies? Yeah. Um, it's just ridiculous. And, it, and, and the thing is, if they'd have conditioned it as part of planning, my business partner and I have got 500000 pounds in a building that's been held up for 18 months that they couldn't condition as part of planning to allow us to even get on site and sort the, the sort the wiggly stuff and the finance stuff later on. They had to they had to make us wait all that time. If we'd have been on bridging finance for that, we'd have been paying five grand a month. Yeah, you know they just don't see it from your point of view, and it is so utterly frustrating that nothing's nothing's enshrouded in common sense. Nothing's like kind of okay, yeah, you get on site with that and we'll sort the mitigation out yeah. scheme later. It's just computer says no and it's ridiculous. Okay. So let, let's let's go back. We're going back to the prioritizing of projects. Mm-hmm. Clearly some projects hit a stumbling block and time. Like you say, time there's been taken out of your hands a little bit on that one. Yeah. 
Um, what other things are you using in your own processing to prioritize certain projects? Is there any key things you're thinking to yourself, I really need to do this one because the ROI on this one's better, because the finance is different, or are you really being more reactive? I guess I'm going a wee bit deep there, Paul, but it's just to try and unpick. When you've got that many projects, and I'm sure there's some listeners that do, it's really just to think, well, from another perspective for somebody else, how would you or how would they tackle all that, that number of projects and maybe not spread themselves too thin? Yeah. I mean, you know, through you know, two and a half years ago when I was um, putting my name to some of these projects and getting the investment on board, I mean, some, sometimes people come to me and say, I've got this project, Yo, do you fancy JV and this? Let's do it together. Um, and, you know, there's there's buildings there where... You've, you've got to make them, you know, they've got to stack in not just one exit. I'd look at a building and think, well, that, you know, I've got a 10,000 square foot, beautiful, stone-built um, uh, ex, uh, school and uh, maternity hospital in Bishop Auckland. It's just such a beautiful building. I got it for 275,000 quid. It's, you know, 10,000 square foot, even if we have to go for a C3, just a flat scheme in there. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the Jonathan Ruffer had just spent 200 million pounds of his own money in the town centre. It was up and coming. Um, so to do an apart hotel in there for, you know, the the, the, the tourist um, trade that's going to be going up there and also maybe, you know, kind of white-collar contractors, then for 280 grand with a, you know, a nine, 900 grand at the time build cost, it stacks up. The problem is then, of course, is materials double and labour rates, you know, go 50%, 80%. Yep. So you're like, well, right, does this actually stack? Um, but I've got a business partner in that who's a very good contractor. He's very fast. He's got good lads and will bring it in cheaper than anyone else could. So I've always got that on my side. You know, I've got a track record. I've got a big portfolio behind me. A lot of my money has gone into seed capital over this last couple of years that, you know, it, it, it has been expensive. But, you know, you persevere. It's, property sometimes is like self-flagellation. You know, this is why now I'm looking back to when I was 40. I'd just finished my industrial unit and I thought... I was going to build myself a property and just take it easy for a couple of years, but it just didn't work out that way. So <laughs> it is what it is, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. So I, I, from my own perspective, I try, I think that ROI is really critical and that um, I guess our customer base is slightly different. So we have probably more interactions with our customers on a day-to-day basis and we get more feedback on what they want and what they don't want so we can be a bit more selective in how we react to that. So when we've got projects on the go and there's customers in those projects, there's sometimes priority scream, right? But it can be difficult sometimes to actually make sure you're not spreading yourself too thin Mm -hmm. and doing lots of projects but not actually completing any. Do you think you're a good finisher? You, You mentioned about being really detailed which I can totally understand and about having a high threshold really for what you want done but do you, does that sometimes mean that things don't get completed as quickly as they maybe could or I mean I've been through four project managers now in two years yes right one I lost to kidney stones and cancer bless him um he was actually an architectural technologist which was a terrible shame you just get people settled in uh, one guy uh, was brilliant on paper, you know, and then you want to stick the CV on the wall and say, oh, uh, do, you, do you remember on your CV when <laughs> I said you could do all of this stuff fantastically? And you interviewed brilliantly. 
Uh, another guy came from the world of commercial and he, he just said, look, Paul, I'm, you know, love working with you, but I just can't give you what you need. I'm, I'm, my background's commercial. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of heritage stuff that you do that I just don't understand all of and don't really want to understand all of the mortars and the, the parapet details and the, you know, the way that he said, I just, you know, I'm, I'm from a world of converting Sainsbury's and stuff like that. Um, and what was the other one? And, and another guy just had a terrible attitude towards the lads. He was great with me, um, but just didn't fit the lads like shite, uh, which was no good. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, we've been, we've been held back um, this last couple of years and I'm just mad keen to, um, so I've now taken on a QS to do my project management. So she's doing the, the QS in the project management. We're now lined up for next year with a load of funding. I had I actually had a guy that I'm, I bought a distressed site of bungalows where there was four built, another five to build. Um, and the my investor had put his money temporarily somewhere and then it got stuck. Right. So, yeah, that's another one that we had to go back in for planning through um, the previous owner, not uh, discharging more conditions. Um, and, yeah, so we've had... Yeah, it is what it is, though. You know, we'll, we'll get there eventually. But do you find, just back to... Just, sorry, just to labour the point a little bit. Do you find that you can get projects finished succinctly or that because of some of your own personality traits that sometimes it's difficult to actually get them finished? Um, I mean, I had the, the former creative director of Malmaison Hotels around at this bed HMO the other day, and he said, the other week rather, and he said, you know what, in 17 years of developing hotels, I've never seen a finish quite so good as what you get in here. And we're, we're that far away now. That, that one's as good as rented. 27th of November, we've got eight people moving in, paying yep. £170 a week. Now, Great. in Darlington, you get generally for a non-ensuite HMO room now about £100, well, £90 to £100 a week. An ensuite room generally £120, £125. And we're, we're busting ceiling prices because of the finish. So, yeah. yeah, it feels painful now, but when it's done... That's a very, very good rent, you know, what, 70-odd grand a year? Yeah, and a lot higher than maybe yeah. your competitors, yeah. yeah. Okay, good point. So with these other projects, yeah, yes, there's planning and all the rest of them, which one do you think is the next one you're going to get done first? Um, we'll be on site with the bungalows hopefully by February. Yep. Uh, if not, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely be on site with that one next year. I've already got a care provider that will take the first four. And I'm working with local commissioners to take the other five. If they if they don't take those straight away, I'll do them as um, um, uh, short term lets, and then I'll, I'll free them up one by one as we get people who we support. Um, you know, the councillor on board with that. Uh, the the C one scheme, the four bed, the externals of that are all done. We've just got to uh, do the internals. The finance for that, the um, local authority are holding me up on a compulsory purchase that we've got up by the train station, so they kind of owe me about 300,000 quid. So, you know, you do end up getting spread thin. Anyone from the council listening? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm saying to my barrister, I'm about to do a lot of PR. I'm a bit of a PR person, you know. I think we need to, you know, we need to tell the world what's happening here. And she's just like, hold, hold, you know, like Braveheart, no, don't do that. So, yeah, I'm like, you know, I think it's it's so unjust the way that we've even been treated on that. You know, we, we had a building. I was waiting for the council to deliver a scheme up at the, or not deliver a scheme, but to announce a scheme. The, the, the council um, 
department actually told me that they weren't going to be CPOing around that side of the station. So I said, great, I'll wait to see what your scheme is when it's announced and we'll do something that will complement it. Next thing we get, compulsory purchase uh, oh, paperwork. Interesting. Through. Do you know what that... So when we get back together, yeah. obviously you'll have done the bungalows, right? Yeah. <laughs> you've just committed to live. I mean, I'm not seeing you done, for another right? year. <laughs> another five years. Well, we'll be on site. <laughs> no, no, just a few months' time. Um, but it'll be really interesting to hear how you get on with that compulsory yeah. purchase order. That'll be quite an interesting one. Right, okay. I want to just bring on to um, a little bit more open-ended bit, which is most of our audience, I think, have some residential experience. Certainly the ones that have reached out have got some sort of residential experience. Some of them have developed into doing maybe HMOs or apart hotels or at least apartments for Airbnb and such, which you've mentioned. Some of them are looking at doing commercial, which is maybe why they're listening to this. So what I wanted to just ask was, do you have some tips, some things that you've learned that somebody could take away after listening to this and immediately apply? And that's for people that have maybe done the buy-to-lets, they're getting to that stage where they're thinking, I just, I want to unfurl my wings a little bit here and get more into maybe commercial conversions, maybe not necessarily commercial to rent as we do. What are some of the tips for those would-be developers? There's so many factors involved. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, you know, it's not the dog in the fight, it's the fight in the dog, it's the experience in the dog, It's, it's all of the factors that they've got around them. Every single case is so very different. and But generally, you've always got to make sure that a, a project stacks. If you wanted to split a project down into subby packages and get a project manager on board, also make sure that it stacks on a principal contractor basis. And I would certainly say to a lot of people, what I, what I wish I'd done a bit more over the years, rather than trying to save money by splitting stuff into subby packages and getting people to project manage, is 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 to have gone more co- main contractor route because as a you know it's difficult you know up from from here up to your neck of the woods it's difficult to make stuff stack and um there's just you know if, if but you can take a lot longer on site if you're trying to manage stuff yourself it's such, it's such a hold your other thoughts but i just let's just delve in that because it's such a it's a difficult subject that one and as you say it does depend on your the person's background and their experience, for sure. But as we just discussed before going on air, on air here, the podcast that went out a couple of episodes ago with Mark Homer, we had that discussion about main contractors. And the project he was specifically talking about had tens of millions spent on it. But the main contractor went bust. Mm. Um, and it was almost, at the end of the conversation, it was almost like, well, we went right back round from doing it yourself, managing it yourself, to then getting to a stage where maybe I have more of a... I guess a principal contractor, albeit you might be paying the subbies yourself, mm. but effectively they're kind of managing it. And then maybe having a project manager, then growing up and getting a main contractor, then they go bust. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And actually going back full circle to, actually, I'm going to manage this myself yeah. again. And it, it's, it, and it does depend on all the circumstances. Every property is different, but I think you're right. The person and their experience is always different too. But there, there must be a certain approach that you can take and I guess having an understanding of what the components are and therefore where your gaps are, mm. that means that surely somebody with reasonable experience can get to that stage. Mm. Did, you know, did, is there anything that Rob, uh, sorry, uh, Mark said that he didn't do, which, which he wished he had, do with his due, had done with his due diligence on that 
main contractor. On that example, main contractor, was it, was, it, was it a force majeure that took them down, or was it just not getting paid off? A it, it was. Client? It was a large contractor who was doing multiple projects. Right. So, Mars project was a big project, but it wasn't the only project. So it was factors out with that team mm. um, that brought it down. In fact, I think it was a bit of a surprise that it happened. Mm. Some of these big contractors are operating on five, six percent margins. Sure, I, I've had I've had colleagues whose businesses have gone because a main contractor has maybe been paid for a project, then the wool's been pulled, and then they get nothing, and they've had to basically fold. Because and it's you sometimes you think these things are so precarious. Yeah, it's an absolute minefield out there. I mean, and as an investor, the person who's actually paying the money over, it's pretty scary sometimes. I mean, Hard to let go of that control. You know, when I you know, when I was on the tools myself, I was on the tools myself twenty six years, um, and I was turning properties around for like fourteen grand, you know, like you know, two, three bed houses, turning them around for like you can literally have some weeks I'm spending that a week now on yeah. on some stuff and it's crazy. I mean, you know, nutrient neutrality has cost me a million pounds in, in lost revenue and costs going forwards. And it's like all of this stuff that is, is prevalent in the market that's just making it more and more difficult. Yeah. Things, things have got to change. My, my buy-to-let portfolio, because I bought them all in my own name, I have a management company that sits over them that uh, manages them for me. But, uh, you know, they're all taxed as a second home. Sure. It's just yeah. crazy. Well, all this just move to Scotland, up. there's slightly more... In, in place up there to make it even more tricky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a few, few more obstacles. We're on level two <laughs> yeah. up there of the game. But going back to your um, point there about a main contractor, or at least, sorry, pricing, so that there's a principal contractor potentially involved in a project, what, what other tips, going back to that tips thing, would you suggest for would-be developers? The the nice thing about the main contractor role, by the way, is the... Uh, the risk goes onto them. Sure. When I when I had these bungalows, they were on about nine hundred thousand quid to build five small bungalows and finish off the four bungalows. Yes, yeah, so you're talking about the financial ones. risk because they've yeah. they've put in a, a price for it. But there's the other stuff like CDM, health and safety, absolutely all that stuff that yeah. really is the piece that most developers, even when they're doing a two bedroom house, have no idea about. But actually, yeah. they're obligated to do it. It you know. In a way, your project's got to be big enough to justify a great site manager. I prefer a working site manager on a smaller project, um, a good project manager, a great QS, and all of this kind of stuff. When I built my industrial units, my architect said, it's only a small job, Paul, I'll just kind of be the QS. But the, the contractor had his QS. That was main contractor. The contractor had his QS, and he you know, he, he put a, in for a lot of stuff. That uh, And there was fairly bad workmanship on site, and I was told, Paul... You don't even. We don't really even want you on site. That guy's got to deliver it to you. And I'm like, but why? Why is the site a mess? Why? Why is this not getting done right? Why is the tarmac, you know, reaching the same level as DPC? And you know, it's like, Paul, we snag that at the end. It's like I'd rather just do it right in the first place if that's okay, you know. And then there's all this consternation. So I wish I'd had a QS. If there's yep. one thing that I wish I'd done differently on a bigger job like that, was was get a QS. So you've got to have that absolute uh, cliche power team around yes. you. Especially if you've not got experience yep. in this kind of stuff. I mean, I've I've thought lately. Do you know what? I wish, you know, I wish in some ways I'd just stayed on the tools and kept it simple and just done one or two at a time rather than, you know. But I've got some. Hey, I've got some great business partners who are contractors. So it, it's not like I'm, you know, just searching for people all the time. But uh, yeah, it's been difficult. I mean, hey, when you've got 
you know, Gateshead uh, LPA took 24 weeks over a five-week pre-op process. Um, I ended up on a Zoom with them, and I said to them, um, have, you guys, uh, have you guys ever thought of working back till six? And she said, I don't like the tone of your question. And I said, I didn't ask it with a tone. I just said, have you ever thought of working back till six? Because you're looking at a guy that puts 16-hour days in, sometimes seven days a week. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to put you off the Zoom, Mr. Million. I said, well, before you do, could you please just know from me that you're not fit for purpose? And people like me aren't going to come to your LPA and, and spend our money in your area. So that's why you're not fit for purpose. But the only reason I said that to a planner or a planning liaison officer is because I knew that I had E2MA changes in my back pocket. So they couldn't <laughs> stop me getting it in the flats. I wouldn't have said that otherwise. You've got to be very careful how you deal with these LPAs. But it's so blood-boilingly frustrating sometimes when they're like, yeah, okay, your chief planner's off. Okay, you've got you've got your short of staff. Like, you can't take 24 weeks over a five-week pre-app process. And uh, non-material amendments taking... Three months, you know, to come through, it's crazy. So would it be fair, just knowing you as, as I have become to, to get to know you, that your network has been very important? So, for instance, we wouldn't be in this room today, we wouldn't be recording this. I'd be back home tomorrow and we'd be doing it on Blooming Zoom, right, rather mm-hmm. than doing this face-to-face. So because of your network, we're here, we're doing a recording, but also for your developments, they're all within, what, an hour of here, really? Oh, yeah. I mean, at the yeah, most. Of, yeah, Hartlepool's like 40 yeah. minutes away, but everything so else. So, going is back to that about. thing about develop, new developers looking at moving over, I mean, it sounds to me like your network is really, really important to you. Yeah. Your, your network, you mentioned there about having the right professionals on your team, but there's also those people that you can reach out to that can help um, get you around issues, get you around corners that maybe present themselves or challenges. Would that be a fair? thing to say yeah I think if you know I, I I put a lot out there you know I help people all the time. I'm currently mentoring for free about four different people uh, just in in various things you know some of that's just more you know kind of attitude training if you like or you know mindset stuff but uh, I definitely buy a lot of universe points and when I need to cash them in yes uh, there's always someone there to help um, because I think if people know you was a good guy and that you'd help them out. Uh, when you ask for help, it's there. You yep. know? So I, it's not like I get mates rates on everything or anything like that, but sometimes you, you know, I get some free advice, but uh, you know, I don't ever ask for anything for free, but it's just nice to have people on, sure. on hand. So put, put out good and it should come back to you. Yeah. And another thing we're going to extract out of your brain, Paul, is about the GVs, because a few of the projects you've mentioned, you've had different GVs, not just one. Mm. And it seems to me that that has been a trick that you've learned that's really helped. Mm-hmm. And it's got to a point where you've got this portfolio and uh, a development pipeline, which are secure. They're not just wishes and what's. They're actually secure because you've managed to develop that that network, those those um, associations of people that have allowed you to do JVs, mm-hmm. which sounds like something that people need to work on. What, was that just because of the nature of who you are, because you're doing networking events, the things you just mentioned there? What? What would you suggest to someone who's looking at bringing on multiple GV partners, apart from anything else, having the luxury of time? Because yeah. <laughs> we're not talking about doing this in two weeks. Yeah. Um, very much a people thing, you know. On the tools, I was, you know, the best project manager in the world. Off the tools, you've just got to know your wealth dynamic and you've got to know where your skill set is. 
and you know there's three sides to the investment triangle as far as I'm concerned and that's um, watch me forget them now uh, yeah finance time and experience and you can have one or two of any of those few people have got all three mm. and so then that gives rise to a, a JV there's, there's again with each JV there's just tons of factors that have to be taken care of a lot of people, I see them on group chats saying, has anyone got a JV agreement? I'm like, no, you go to a solicitor. You get it done bespoke. You might pay a couple of three grand. Used to be 1,500 quid. All of a sudden, that seems like it's two and a half, three grand nowadays. Um, but you, you get it done bespokely. And you've got to know your... So I'd, I, I recommend to everyone doing a test called understandmyself.com uh, by Jordan Peterson. And also wealth dynamics, and there's a there's a free test called Sixteen Personalities, and I think you've got to know yourself, but you've also got to you've got to feel the vibe, and you've got to really know that that other person is yep. is is willing to put in what they said they were going to put in, and so those heads of terms and those proper agreements going forwards absolutely need to be done, and um, you know track record as well. There's, you do see a lot of people. Um, you know, deal sources getting to, together and co-sourcing and doing JVs and all kinds of stuff. You need someone at the opposite end of the skill spectrum to you or three people round the table that they could all take. You know, you don't want two people with exactly the same skill. Dep- again, but it depends on the project. You've got to really, um, I think, know someone quite well before you're going to get yep. into some kind of a yep. JV and, and know that things can change. You know, I had one of my business partners who was uh, supposed to be putting all of the money into a project. Um, uh, he had uh, some bad luck with the project that he had going on in another country where it was hit by a hurricane and the insurance weren't paying out. And then all of a sudden it's like, hey, Paul, uh, yeah, I can't put any more sea capital in. That's on you now. So there's 80 grand yes. that I've had to put into that that I wasn't expecting. So you've just got to be so careful and, and have a cushion, right? One thing that... I've never particularly allowed myself a massive cushion because I've always thought, you know, I, I want my money to be deployed. But having a cushion in the bank is so very important because otherwise you're going out and borrowing money at 10%, 12% mm-hmm. in order just to keep yourself cash To keep things moving, yeah. yeah. Luckily, I've got that decent-sized portfolio there pumping in the brass and the HMOs have been brilliant, you know, 24 HMOs. Yeah, well that, when you've got that spread, <clears throat> not everything goes wrong all at the same time. And that, that balance can come in. I've got one last question because we are running out of time. And that is, if you could go and talk to Paul Millian just at industrial building time, what would you tell him? Uh, when I, in 2008? Yeah. Now, 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 having experienced what you have, knowing what you know, sure, you can't go and tell yourself, by the way, there's a pandemic coming and all yeah. the other stuff, right? But what would you... Do differently. What would you say to yourself? Would it just be cool down, or what would you say? Take your own advice. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, again, going back to slow is smooth, smooth is fast. All right. When I bought that land, I used the man's money off him to buy his own land off him. The completion with deferred consideration. It was eighty grand. I got planning on it. Got valued at two twenty. Now, the going back to myself, sensible Paul would have sold that piece of land and bought another piece of land and got planning. And sold it. I've done that 10 times and now been living in the Maldives. <laughs> so that is my thing for the future. I talk about pivot points a lot. I've got three sort of three or four like um, land for planning things that I will not be going to site with those. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at um, some ethical land sourcing stuff where 
Some people don't know what they're sat on. And I'm happy to tell them what they're sat on with a view to ring fencing the value of the land as it is now. And then whatever the planning uplift is, we split it 50%. So therefore, I don't get to have to deploy finance into buying the land and I get 50% of the uplift. But I can get, I, I say to them, I can probably get better planning than I think you can. And, you know, a lot of people, they just don't know what they're sat on. Sure. And I do okay. get approached yeah. by a lot of people. So I'd go, land, don't bother doing property development, people. Just buy land and E2MA buildings, get the plan. That's what you would have said to yourself. Flog them on. And would yeah. you have said anything about how you treated yourself, how you spoke to yourself, any of that stuff? Because for me, one of the things I go back and tell myself is just get out of the way. Yeah. Right? You know, and, and, and I guess the other one is probably chill, but... You know, is there anything you would have said to yourself about the mental side about how you approach things? Yeah. I mean, that there is a fantastic segue to a whole another. Well, let's podcast. do another podcast about Absolutely. that. Then. Honestly, mate, I am so interested in all of that. Beliefs, personal beliefs, all the personal development. You can do all right. the personal development. We're going to part that. We're going to part that. I've got one other question right. then. Paul Million. What a super surname, right? How did that come about? Right, well, I'm actually... Uh, I'm sure there's quite a few people that have never actually risked asking you, Everyone <laughs> but want to me. know. <laughs> I, I once went to a networking event and a lady came across to me and she said, uh, what, what's this name, Million? Like, you, you know, you're not even Paul Million on Facebook. I'm like, no, it, it's actually on my birth certificate. So <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, uh, we might be related somewhere right. down the line. Uh, I'm actually uh, a Macmillan. So there was a couple of, uh, the story goes, there's a couple of uh, miscreant Scottish brothers known as Macmillan that, had to flee Scotland for nefarious activities and um, they fled down to the northeast and changed their name. Cam and camouflaged their name from a million Nobody will ever know who they are. And so there's quite a few of us up in the northeast around the sort of Darlington, Bishop Auckland, Cockfield area. It's a bizarre name, you know, so... It's great. Yeah. It's definitely memorable, that's for sure. Defo. Right, okay, thanks, Paul. We're going to pause there. We'll come back and do another podcast mm -hmm about the mental stuff and about thinking through um, how you think about things, yeah. really, and the process in your head rather than all the other stuff going on around about you. So we'll definitely come back to that. Thank you so much for today. It's been really interesting. Yeah. We Thank need you. to get out the door and go to our networking event. Yeah. Can we call the next party the, the fight in the dog? Whatever you wish. That. Whatever Perfect. you wish. Well, let's have a beautiful night. It'll be great. Thank okay. You. Cheers. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for coming down. Thanks for coming down.